Welcome to Bethel Brandon Sunday Message. Please head over to our website, BethelBrandon.ca, to figure out how we can best serve you. Welcome to those people who are uh, on our online congregation. We are glad that you are joining us as well. Uh, for those of you who are new, uh, we are continuing in a series in the book of John. Uh, for those people who were here last week, uh, no, I'm not going to preach with a toque. I don't look good in a toque. And if you're wondering what I'm talking about, you're going to have to listen to last week's sermon. Now, when you get into a sermon on the book of John and things like that, sometimes you've got to dig a little bit deeper. I've read the book of John a number of times. Uh, but as I dig a little bit deeper to try and put some, some, some meat into the, the um, essence of what is being said in the book of John, one thing that I have come to realize is that John was very purposeful in everything that he said. And there are some explosive truths in the book of John, and they are explosive truth because he had particular things that he wanted the people who were reading it to know. Now, John, John very much was a disciple of Jesus, had all of these things that, that, uh, that God was speaking to his heart in, in the ministry that he had, in the books that he had read. But his gospel is different than the other three, and perhaps you have realized this. And there's one of the things that stands out, for those of you kind of are, are like really students in this, is that the other three gospels, they recorded it because they wanted to make an account of the gospel, and they had an emphasis in terms of, in terms of who they were trying to reach. Like Matthew was trying to prove that Jesus was the Messiah. Luke was trying to show that he was the Son of Man. But when we get to the book of John, it is different. And the reason is this, that when the other three Gospels were written, many of the people who were reading it at the time had seen Jesus alive on earth at that time. John, when he writes the Gospel of John, writes it 30 years later, 20 to 30 years later than the original Gospel writers. And so by the time that John writes it, and John, as we know, is the, was the only, the only disciple that was not martyred, the only apostle that was not martyred. And what he is trying to do is totally different. So he becomes very purposeful after reading and seeing all these other Gospels. He says, there's something that you need to know, and I am going to say all these things because there's two huge truths that I want you to know. The first thing is this, that Jesus was God. Right from the very first, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. There will be people who will say, Jesus never ever said that he was the Messiah. Well, those people have never read the book of John. Because he is emphatic about it in a number of times throughout the Scriptures, and we will read these probably within the next chapter of the book of John. The other thing is this. In the book of John, the word pisio, which means believe, is said over 100 times in the 21 chapters of the book of John. In the New Testament, it's probably 200, 250 times. So over half the times that you hear the word believe in the New Testament, half of them are in the book of John. Isn't that incredible? And so what he is saying is, I need you to know that he is God. Because at that time, even though only one generation had passed after Jesus had died and rose from the death, there were people who were already saying, was he really God? I'm not too sure. Now, the other gospel writers had that advantage, but John did not. And what he was doing was he was saying to the generation afterwards, 
He is indeed God, and you have to believe in him. You need to believe in him with all of your heart. You need to sell the farm belief. Not just kind of, oh, just kind of, yeah, I kind of believe. No, he says you need to actually, passionately, with all of your heart, believe in him. And that's why all the stories and many of the stories that were added were things that he said this needs to also be known about the gospel. And this is why you only hear about Nicodemus and the woman at the well and the wedding feast in Galilee and, and Nicodemus and, and the I am statements and all the things that he has. The last half of the book of, of John is within the last week of Jesus. And so these are all important things for us to understand. And so now that I've kind of put that foundation down, I think today will really resonate with all of us because it talks about the experience of desperation. And we all know desperation, don't we? We all have our desperation story. And how many here enjoy the feeling of desperation? All those hands around, isn't that a wonderful feeling, desperation? You wake up realizing you don't have enough money to pay the rent, and you see your children, and you're thinking that you can't afford to eat them, and you're about to get cooked, uh, kicked out of your house. Oh, what a wonderful feeling. Thank God for this, this time. You're sitting in the hospital, and, uh, and uh, there's an operation which is happening, and they're giving you a 50-50 chance as to whether you're going to make it through this operation. And then you're sitting there, and you're saying, wow, this is exhilarating. Uh, what's for breakfast? No, you're not asking what's for breakfast. You're asking the deeper questions, aren't you? Desperation is like that. We have all prayed prayers of desperation, haven't we? For those people who are at football or who are football fans, you will, you will recognize a, a play that happens at the end of a football game, at the end of a fo- the close football game, where all of a sudden you're down by uh, one touchdown score. And there's two seconds left in the clock, and you're on your own 20-yard line. You need to get 80 yards to score a touchdown to win. So the play is a common one in all of football. It doesn't vary at all. And the play is this. You keep a block for me, and I'm going to throw this ball 80 yards, and hopefully one of you guys will catch it in the end zone. What's that called? Hail Mary. That apparently is a Catholic desperation prayer. Is it not? Here's the thing about desperation. Desperation brings birth to innovation. Desperation makes you think critically about every decision that you make. It is the raw, the raw material for drastic change in your life. Many times you won't change until you get desperate. Isn't that true? I have found that desperate, desperation can be very silent. I know that I've talked to lifeguards before, and I, if you ask them a sound, what, does, what is the sound of a person drowning? Many times they say they don't make any sound at all because they're using all of their energy that they possibly can to keep themselves alive. And many times that's what desperation is like to us. So many of us sit silently in the pews, and many of us sit silently in our neighborhoods going through desperation. But it takes so much of our resources that many times other people do not see that desperation. It makes you do and it makes you say and it makes you act in ways that you have norm, never normally do. And, and let's face it, desperation peels off the superficial and reveals who you really are. Desperation exposes character. And the last thing I'll say this about desperation is this. Desperation is no respecter of persons, is it? 
doesn't matter whether you're young. It doesn't matter whether you're old. It doesn't matter whether you're male. It doesn't matter whether you are female. It doesn't matter your gender. It doesn't matter your race or your position or your wealth or your authority. Desperation is bestowed equally among us. Ultimate desperation is when you come to the point where you are totally dependent on God. And in that respect, desperation is vital because it is that one place and it is that one time where God has your whole attention. Amen? So this is kind of an interesting thing. You might be here and you might be desperate. If you are, believe that God desires to work and minister into your heart. And so with that, we go into the last part of John chapter 4. And John, in his writings, mentions uh, seven particular miracles, which are called the seven signs, and they all show something unique about who Jesus is and the fact that he is God. The first one we saw in John chapter 2 was at the wedding feast of Galilee. The second one, which we'll read about today, is in Cana of Galilee, the exact same place. Isn't that interesting? That the first two miracles of Jesus happen in this small, unique community called Cana. And there's no big fanfare of either of them. So let's read, if we can, John chapter 4. I'm going to start at verse 43. I know it says John 46, but I'm going to read a few verses earlier. It says this, Now after the two days, he departed from there and went to Galilee. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem at the feast. For they had gone to the feast. They had also gone to the feast. So Jesus came to, to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And there a certain nobleman whose son was sick, was sick at Capernaum. When he had heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and implored him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Then Jesus said to him, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. The nobleman said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, Go your way, your son lives. So the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went his way. And he was now going down, uh, as he was now going down, his servants met him and told him, to, and, and saying, your son lives. And he inquired of them, he got better, and they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at the same time and hour that Jesus said to him, your son lives. And he himself believed in his household. This again is the second sign that Jesus did. Interesting passage of scripture. Now, if, if you're just here for the first time, kind of let me kind of help you fill in the kind of journey that Jesus has. He kind of starts, he kind of starts in, in, in his ministry with the baptism of John, and he starts with the wedding feast of Cana where he turns the water into wine, and from there he heads down to Jerusalem. You know, and in, in that particular place, he causes a bit of a ruckus because he begins over, over, uh, turning the tables and, and coming against the, some of the corruption which is happening. And from there, he goes and he wanders up into Samaria. Last week we talked about a conversation that he had with a Samaritan woman and, and this, the Jewish people at that time despise the Samaritan people. And so there's this mini revival that happens and then it says a couple days later he finds himself back up in this place in Cana. So there's this circle that happens. And this event happens probably a week 
after the Samaritan event because Sychar, where he was in Samaria, and, and uh, Cana is about 65 kilometers. So if you're walking, if you're driving that, it's like, hey, that's an hour drive or more. If you're walking, it is substantially longer. And so this is kind of the situation that he is in, what is happening, taking place, and he's in Galilee. Now let me just tell you something about Galilee, for those of you who wish to know a little bit about the history. Galileans were kind of like anti-government people. At that time in history, the history books talk about the fact that there was a huge revolt that happened in Galilee with the government because they didn't want to pay the taxes that they were paying. And so by and large, these were the type of people who didn't like to see government people or government things which were going on. As a matter of fact, if there was an apple cart to tip over, they were ready to tip over the apple cart. And so the attitude that happened in Galilee was totally different than happened in Samaria. Now, Samaria, Samaria were supposed to be the unspiritual people. Take Jesus at his word. Galilee, his own hometown, they don't. And Jesus kind of hints upon that, doesn't he? But there's this attitude that they have that isn't so much based in the fact that they say that they believe him, but they believe him because of all the miracles which is happening. And if he's an anti-government guy, we like him even more. We like anybody who is willing to stir up trouble. And that was Galilee, and that was the crowd, and Jesus senses that this is the case. So when a government guy shows up, they are thinking, Jesus is going to tear this guy apart. Either that or there's going to be a miracle and we're going to be there to see it. And a strike of irony though, he does heal his son, but the people who are there to see something don't see anything that happens at all. Isn't that interesting? But as I, I peel apart this story for you, I want you to recognize something. That in this individual who comes to Jesus, there is a process of faith. And I believe that all of us go through these processes. That every single one of you who are here this morning, you are at some point in the process. So I'm not going to do an in-depth thing. This is one of those things that hopefully piques your interest so that you can study it a little bit deeper, a little bit more. Take the word, be Berean. Don't just believe what I'm saying. Take a look at the word yourself. And figure things out. First one is this. And I think that we've kind of discussed it. The first level of faith is this. Desperation. It is that point in our lives where we become so helpless and so hopeless that it reveals our need for a savior. If this guy did not have a sick son, my question is, would he have ever come to know Jesus? Would he ever even wanted to see Jesus? My guess would be no. And having been a pastor for like 30 years or more, I've come to realize that something. That desperation is one of those things that brings us to God. But for many times, it will be that thing that will push us away from God. Have you ever noticed that? That in desperation, you will come to God and say, God, you need to move something. And other people will come to a point of desperation and they'll say, if this is God, I want nothing to do with him. And it all depends on how you see God. You can't see God as a wishing well for you. I'm just going to come to God and I'm going to get what I need from him. God's not like that. He doesn't operate that way. We all know that. The other thing is this. 
When desperation happens in our lives, I believe that God works in conjunction with the Holy Spirit working in you. I believe that when we go through desperate times, I think that the Holy Spirit is working through those desperate situations and in those desperate times. And many times I've heard a story. Sometimes you will listen to a testimony. Someone stands up and gives a story of how they got saved, and they will say this, my life was going well until it wasn't, until my health deteriorated, until the death in my family, until that accident that happened, until the divorce divorce that took place in my life, until I hit that time of depression, until I had that disease afflicted me, until that addiction came about, until my child began to revolt, until that tragedy, until the war until that terrorist event, until my best friend double-crossed me, until I got fired, until I got bankrupt, and it goes on and on because we realize desperation has many faces, doesn't it? How desperate was this guy? Now, if you have had a son or a daughter that has been deathly ill, you do know desperation, do you not? So here's the situation. It says that this individual was a nobleman. And by that, that was kind of terms in that time as they were an official of the king. At that time, our best guess would be that it would be Herod Antipas. We hear about Herod Antipas later on in Scripture and his dealings with uh, John the Baptist and and all those things. But it it would be logical to assume that if he was an official of the king, he probably resided in the country where the king had ruled from in Galilee, and that would be a community called Tiberias. And so he has a son, and it would be logical to think this. Now, people will disagree. Now, if you take a look at, at Israel and, and where they were and the, the uh, shore of the, the Sea of Galilee, right at the north would be Capernaum, where Jesus' headquarters was. Tiberias would kind of be like at 9 o'clock. And so there was like a 10-kilometer trip, probably a boat trip, that he took to Capernaum because he figured that's where Jesus was. So he gets to Capernaum and realizes that Jesus is not there. Where is he? Oh, he's in Cana. Cana is 20 kilometers away. So what he does is he leaves his son in Capernaum, figuring that if I bring my son with me, on a hard trip with horseback and all the things which is taking place, he will probably die. So he scoots down to Cana of Galilee, going the 20-minute trip, and he goes to see Jesus. And the Word of God, as I had read it there, it says implores. Other versions say beg. Here's the thing to understand about that particular word. In the Greek, it is in the imperfect tense, that verb, which basically says this. He didn't just ask. He begged, and he begged, and he begged. He never stopped begging is what it says. If you were to read it in the Greek, that's what you would understand. In other words, here he is in front of a bunch of people who hate him, throwing away all the dignity that he has, saying, Jesus, you need to come, and you need to heal my son. Why didn't he go to Herod? There were doctors back then. Why didn't he go to the doctor's? Why didn't he send a representative? He's an important guy. Because it was a situation where all the king's horses and all the king's men could not deal with the situation. And we have all lived in situations where we know that all the king's horses and all the king's men could not get us through what we are going through. 
And sometimes the first step of faith, the first level of faith is desperation. From there, there's another one, which is called, uh, which is called discontentment. You know, it seems like the nobleman whose son was sick leads from desperation to discontentment. You're saying, well, that doesn't sound much better, Pastor Mike. Well, because sometimes faith is a wrestle. Sometimes faith is that thing that you fight for if it is something which is true. Faith will take you on a journey. A journey for something which is real. You can have all the amenities of life that you think will give you joy, and it doesn't. And it appeared that this was the case with this man. And with that comes a discontentment, an angst, a desperation. You can, sense, you can surrender to desperation, and it will debilitate you, or you can become, it can become the impetus of the journey to make you see truth. Desperation will make you stagnant, or it will make you stubborn, stubborn in a good way. You notice Jesus' response to him? Like here's a guy, his son is dying, and Jesus' response is one that we don't often see. In verse 48, it says, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. That wasn't very Jesus-like. That was kind of rude, don't you think? Now, it's not the reply that you would give to a desperate man who is broken. But if you take a look at the verses, because some versions will say, you people, he says you, it says in my version, you people. The you is plural. And so what he is doing is not talking to this individual, but he is talking to the crowd around him. But he is kind of caught up in the statement. And the fact that this man remained undeterred indicates that he crossed a threshold. And I think all of us have to cross that threshold that goes from desperation to discontentment. And discontentment is both terrible and it's wonderful. And discontentment, discontentment is this. It is the enemy of status quo. It is the thing inside of us that says, I am sick and tired of the way thing is. I'm sick of the superficial. I'm sick of the shallow. I want something that is real. I want something that is life-giving. And for that reason, I find this. That discontentment. It's not just a level, but it's something that many times happens through Christians' lives their whole life. Have you ever had a divine discontent? You ever been walking along in your faith and you said, there's something wrong. Somewhere along the line, I've just stopped running. And God has called me to something greater. He's called me to something better. And for some reason, I'm unhappy. I've got every reason to be happy. And the difference between a person who might just sit in a pew and do nothing and a person who is sitting in a pew and saying, I've had enough, is this thing called divine contentment. God's called me to something greater. God's called me to something fuller in him. God has called me to not just sit here and wait in the pool, but to jump into the deep end and do everything I can to serve him with all of my heart. The level of discontentment. When was the last time you have been discontent? It's a good thing. I believe so. From there comes discontentment, comes what we will call determination. You know, this is the point where the nobleman whose son was sick was at a point where he was not willing to take no for an answer. His faith had risen to the point where he says, no, I don't think I can leave. You know, Jesus, I understand what you are saying, and, and I, I guess I kind of comprehend what's going on, but I'll tell you this, I've got a son who is sick. And I don't think that I can leave unless you come with me, that you speak to me. 
and do something. When Jesus made the response that he did, we shouldn't be surprised. You know, Jesus many times could be abrupt. You, you take a look at the wedding feast we just read a couple of chapters ago. His mother says, hey, they ran out of wine. Man, what do you have to do with me? My time hasn't come up. Kind of abrupt. Nicodemus sees him at night. says, oh, you're most wonderful. I know that you've come from God because no man can do the miracles that God does them. Hey, listen. You got to be born again. You think you have all this stuff together, but you don't. You need to be born again. Samaritan woman. Go get your husband. Oh, that's embarrassing. And it goes on throughout the scriptures. A a Syrophoenician woman asked for her daughter or a relative to be healed. And he says, listen, I don't feed feed the dogs. Remember that? She says, yeah, well, the dogs eat the crumbs. And Jesus many times didn't make it easy. And he challenged us to go beyond the formalities and the hidden agenda to actually call on him. And some were in that crowd, and they, they were looking for deliverance from the Romans, and some were looking for the healings, and some were looking for the entertainment or the convenience. And it leads us to ask, what's my motivation? What is our motivation in serving Jesus? And that point of faith, of determination, says, I need to go farther. I need God to do more in my life. I need to give him absolutely every part of my life. Philippians chapter 2, verses 2, 12 and 13, makes a statement. He says this, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. It is a process where God is continually working on you, provoking you, pushing you to go further in your faith. Because determine is a stage where truth becomes importance and pretense and superficiality becomes less tolerated. And we see it. We see it all throughout Scripture. Jesus tells the parable of a sower. And he says, some of this seed, it fell on, on the wayside, and some of it fell among the weeds. And, and he says, you know, your faith is going to be challenged. You know, and the good ground is the one where you work it out so much that you begin to grow. But if you care about the cares of this world, if, if you're worrying about the persecution and stuff, you're never going to make it. And he talks about this level of determination that says, I'm going to serve Jesus. Even if everything else goes against me, I'm going to serve him. Determination. So there we'll call it the, the developing. So it says in verse, in, um, it, 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 he sits there and Jesus is about to show something special. And he says, basically, this is the first time that it is revealed that Jesus doesn't have to be in the place where the miracle happens. This is guy said, listen, Jesus, you actually need to be there to do the healing. And Jesus basically says this. I can be wherever I am because I am everywhere. There's no barrier to the power of God. The other thing he is revealing is this, is that there is a faith that happens when we believe the word as opposed to a faith that happens when we see the wonder. You see, there's a difference. This is what the crowd was wanting to see, the wonder. This guy basically had to believe the word and the miracle came afterwards. Verse 50, go your way, your son lives. Three times you hear the word, your son lives in this passage of scripture. Like the first sign, the first, the first miracle that Jesus does is he turns the water into wine. And what he shows at that time is that Jesus was Lord over nature. The second miracle is this, that Jesus is Lord over life. He's Lord over life and it requires 
a condition of faith to be able to proceed to see God move. This stage of life required him to step out and believe. You notice every level there is a new resistance that needs to happen. Faith is kind of like a muscle, isn't it? And what God does throughout our lives is he puts little dumbbells on our lives. And the thought is this, the more resistance, the stronger I get. The more the muscle builds up, the more that it's exercised. That's why it says work out. Work out your salvation. These are important things. The developing goes on to the next one. The next level is this. The doing. So the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went his way. If faith is to be effective, it has to have legs. Faith, which is all talk, is not really faith at all. I know that I've mentioned this story before, and, and I know that all of you have not been here for all of my sermons, and I know that you haven't memorized all my sermons, so I think it's safe to say maybe you haven't heard this. If you look in the book of, uh, of Deborah, there is a story about how Barak and Deborah had defeated the, Assyrian, or the, um, the army that they were against, Sisera and his army. In Hebrews chapter 11, it talks about the hall of faith. It talks about those people who did all these great things in faith. And Barak is in it, but Deborah isn't. And you say, what's with that? Jesus has something or God has something against women. No, that's not it at all. The thing is this. Deborah made the declaration. You need to go. God will give you the victory, but you need to go and fight against them. Deborah made the, made the proclamation but Barak was the one who had to stand in the valley while 900 iron chariots came down upon him. You see the difference? That there is something about going, that, st that statements and declarations can only take you so far that you have to actually have a time where you step out. That armchair faith won't do. You know what armchair faith is, do you not? Do you know what an armchair quarterback is? There are many people who are football fans here who will sit down this afternoon to watch their favorite team play football and they will yell at the screen. What do you do that play for? Well, that's the dumbest thing. If I was the coach, I'd do it my way. Armchair faith, all talk, no responsibility. Let me, know, let, me, let me tell you something about this passage, which, which I think is wonderful and perhaps you've never, ever seen. It says this. On his way back, he was met by a group of people, a company of people that says, hey, your son lives. And he says, when did this happen? And he compared, and it was the same time that Jesus said, your son lives. Remember that? Well, the trip from Cana to Capernaum is 20 kilometers. If you're on horseback, it doesn't take you 24 hours to ride back. So this basically is what happened. He took him at his word. He settled in at the Best Western in Cana, stayed for the night, and then he drove home. In other words, he didn't leave right away. He didn't just sit there and say, oh, this is great. i got to go right now see if he's better. He took him at his word. Enough to the point where he says, okay, well, if that's the case, then my job is done here. There's something about faith when it is real, takes the promises of God and acts upon them. And the last one really quickly is this. 
that eventually this impactful situation extended past himself. His son was healed, and the rest of his family was saved. True faith, when it is matured, can't wait to tell others that the most loving thing that you can do if you love Jesus is to tell another person of the love of Jesus. So if you look at this passage description, the most common question that we are led to ask when we see this progression of faith is this. What stage am I in? Where am I in that whole continuum of faith progress? But that's not the only question you can ask. The other question is this. Where is God challenging me to step out? When was the last time I was desperate for God? When was the last time God has put in my heart a holy discontentment? Where is God pushing you? What is the weight that he's adding to make you stronger? Hey, if, if we go forward in the progression, can I go backward in the progression? Like, is there a time where you did have a level of faith that did, and, and now something has happened in your, in your life, and, and you used to have a prevailing faith, and for some reason now you've kind of backed up? Is your faith contagious? I'm not too sure. My guess is that all of us are at some point in the story or another, and this is the grand thing about the story, is that no matter where you're at, God is wanting to push you ahead. And he wants you to believe. If you're serving, serving the Lord, just kind of believing him, it probably is the most frustrating place in the world to be. Because John says this, Jesus is the son of God, but you've got to believe in him. You've got to give him everything. You've got to let him be complete Lord of your life. And if you don't, then you'll just be frustrated. So God, my prayer today for every single person here is this. That we will believe in you no matter what the desperation is. There might not be anyone who's here who has a son that is deathly ill. Maybe there is. I'm not too sure. But maybe it just has a different face and maybe you're sitting here and you're frustrated and you've been discontent for a long time. Or maybe you're here and God is, is placing in you a heart which is determined to serve him and you're sick and tired of the way you've been sitting around. You've been expecting the pastor to do it for you, but it's not. God, you, I can't serve God for you. God is calling you to a deeper, deeper walk or he's calling you to believe in him completely, fully, absolutely. No reservations. He is calling you to a new life. He is calling you to a deeper level. God, I just pray for every single person who this message is about. For the people who want to go deeper, for the people who want to thrive in their faith. I pray, Father, that your word will sink deeply into our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Can we stand at this time? Thanks for putting up with me. But I believe that God wants to move in a number of people's lives here. So Pastor Glenn is going to sing a closing song. We are going to have people who have uh, who are our prayers in the church. They're going to kind of come up at this time. And if you are part of the prayer team, come on up to the front uh, so that you can meet anyone. If you're here, these altars are open for any person who God is dealing with. Whatever it is, I don't care what it is. There's not going to be. We only come up if this is the case. I want God to move as a result of the preaching of God's word today. And I'm trusting that the Holy Spirit will do that. 
So may the Lord bless you. May the Lord bless these altars. And may you, you be blessed in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to this message. If you enjoyed it, please head over to BethelBrandon.ca to listen to our older messages or maybe connect with us and figure out how we can best serve you. Thanks for listening. Have a great day.